passage uh, for this evening's study in Matthew and chapter 24. The Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 24. We will read from verse 3. And as the Lord Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man lead you astray, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and shall lead many astray. And ye shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for these things must needs come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall arise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and earthquakes in divers places. But all these things are the beginning of travail. Then shall they deliver you up unto, in, unto tribulation, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all the nations for my name's sake. And then shall many stumble, and shall deliver up one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall lead many astray. And because iniquity shall be multiplied, the love of the many <coughs> shall wax cold. But he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. When therefore ye see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that are in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let him that is on the housetop not go down to take out the things that are in his house. And let him that is in the field not return back to take his cloak. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in, in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on a Sabbath. For then shall be great tribulation, such as the world, as such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days had been shortened, no flesh would have been saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is the Christ, or here, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. <coughs> Behold, I have told you beforehand. If therefore they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, go not forth. Behold, he is in the inner chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh forth from the east, and is seen even unto the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Wheresoever the carcasses, there will the eagles be gathered together. But immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, 
and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send forth his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now we'll sing another <coughs> Now this evening's study springs out of last week's study, which sprang out of a series last autumn upon the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point that I want to enlarge upon was one of the points we were making last week about the results of the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will remember that we have been, we've already mentioned all these others, his work is completed, the Holy Spirit is given, all is ours in Christ by the Spirit to be received through faith. And another result is that the Lord Jesus is interceding for us unceasingly. And the third result is we have a risen, victorious, and enthroned head to whom we are joined, who is beyond the power of the enemy to touch or defeat. And then the fourth result is the ultimate realization of God's purpose is absolutely sure. Now the fifth point, out of which comes our study this evening, was the concluding point, the concluding result of the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus, which is that there is nothing he cannot do, no advance he cannot make, no intention he cannot realize, no obstacle he cannot overcome. Christ is on the throne and cannot lose. Now we dealt with a number of things last week. We thought about various um, things that come up against God's children over the years and in our own lives personally. But the one that we are thinking about this evening is the future in an international way. We talked, you remember, last week about troubles and trials we, that come to all of us, uh, both personally, individually, and corporately. We spoke of the devil's work and the way that the Lord uh, um, seems to use the devil at times. He overrules his very activity to our good. <clears throat> we spoke of death, normal or abnormal, whether it be a martyr's death, as so many recently in the Congo, or whether it is a normal, what we would call a normal death. Uh, death is the last uh, weapon in the enemies, in the devil's armory. But uh, the Lord Jesus has the final word. And we, we, we looked at some of those scriptures about the, the way that the Lord Jesus will raise our bodies from the grave, from the dust, and will reconstitute 
bodies so that not a hair will perish. And now we want to think a little more about what we call the international things of the future. Sometimes it is hard for us to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne when we have seen two world wars in uh, this century and when we have seen the uh, rising up of vast political systems that would seem in their very nature to be inherently anti-God and anti-Christ. We might well wonder whether the Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne. And if it were not for the fact that God's word very clearly portrays and predicts those very systems, we, our faith, might well fail. We might really wonder when we see these great things arise and, and, and as it were, seemingly obliterate the work of God publicly almost cause it to cease uh, to be at all. We might well wonder whether the Lord Jesus is on the throne. But if we are holy on his side, we cannot lose. And this is the wonder of the whole thing. In spite of the international future, whether there will be any new form of fascism, which might well be. Whether communism gains world control in the end or not. Nuclear war or no <coughs> nuclear war. God has the final word. And his Christ is on the throne. And the wonderful thing about it is this that for the encouragement of our faith, thousands of years ago, God has spoken through prophets, ordinary men and women like you and me. God the Holy Spirit has spoken through and predicted, foretold, the events that would finally lead up to the end of this era. Not, in fact, to the end of... Uh, an inhabited earth, but the end of what the Bible calls this age, this age of man's supremacy and the government of sin. Now, I, after last week, we did deal with a certain amount of this, and we mentioned certain things. We talked about some uh, of the future troubles that the Bible uh, foretells. And we spoke about Antichrist and um, made some observations and also about uh, a counterfeit church. And the result was that there were a number of questions. So I said that this week we would look at the scriptures. So you must forgive me if uh, tonight we are not quite so coherent, uh, it's not so uh, s s uh, flowing uh, tonight as it was last week, because we are just simply going to read scripture, and then I'll point certain things out to you from the scripture. <clears throat> well now, first of all, I've grouped the scriptures under three headings. First of all, the future troubles uh, that we are led to expect 
at the end of the age. Well, now then, let's take our Bibles and let's start. First, we'll turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, <coughs> verse 1 and 2. One Timothy four, one, two, and three. But the Spirit says <coughs> expressly that in later times some shall fall away from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Now I do want you to underline this, because the point that the Bible makes about the end of the age is the more and more manifest, almost visible working of what it calls seducing spirits, deceiving or lying spirits, and, um, and teaching of demons. Uh, here you've got it. In later times, some shall fall away from the faith, giving heed seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, through the hypocrisy of men that speak lies, branded in their own conscience as with a hot iron. That is, a conscience that is seared so that it is no longer sensitive to what is right or wrong, but can tell lies in the name of God and not feel bad about it. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God created to be received with thanksgiving by them that believe and know the truth. Then if you turn over to the second letter of Timothy, <coughs> chapter 3, this is the last letter that Paul ever wrote. Verse 1. But know this, that in the last days grievous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, haughty, railers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, implacable, slanderers, without self-control, fierce, no lovers of good, traitors, headstrong, puffed up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, but having denied the power thereof, from these also turn away. Well, that's not a very happy picture of the religious world. Um, both these references are to so-called Christianity. Uh, it's a reference to a falling away that is to be expected at the end from pure doctrine, and uh, uh, turning away to things that have uh, no part uh, in the truth of God. Then again, if you turn back to the Old Testament, to Jeremiah, <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 30. Now we look at some other scriptures along another line. Chapter 30 of Jeremiah, <clears throat> verse 4. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child, 
Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off the neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more make him their bondman, but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be quiet, and at ease, and none, shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have scattered thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will in no wise leave thee unpunished. Now this phrase in uh, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble, is throughout scripture the phrase that is used for what we have called theologically the tribulation the time of jacob's trouble now we're looking at one or two of these phrases so that later you as you come to the new testament you'll find them used then daniel chapter 12 <clears throat> daniel chapter 12 now we remember these scriptures are all to do with this time of trouble or troubles at the end of the age. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now, for those of you who know a little bit of the context, we shall be looking at some other passages in Daniel in a moment, you will know that this is to do expressly with the end of the age. Um, for instance, Daniel is told in verse 4, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. That's the two little signs of the end, uh, which seem so simple, so almost nursery-like in their simplicity. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Daniel might have thought to himself, what a strange thing for the Lord to say to him, that this was the sign of the end. There were people traveling in his days, and there was knowledge was increasing in his days. But evidently these two things are to be the, the unique feature of the end of the age. And I think that if you look at it sensibly and in perspective, you will have to admit that the thing that is unique about the last hundred years is the increase in travel and the speed of travel and the efficiency and ease with which we can move all over the place. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. In the last hundred years or so, the unique feature is the amazing leap forward 
in knowledge in every kind. For thousands and thousands of years, a very large part of the world has been illiterate and uh, ignorant, and now, whilst it's a, a, a battle, yet um, for the first time, uh, a large number of people are reading and writing, and on, in every uh, realm, in every sphere, knowledge is increasing. We took Daniel to, as I've often said, to London Airport and uh, gave him one day there, I think he would say, well, I understand a little bit about many shall run to and fro. Here they're coming from the ends of the earth, Hong Kong, Melbourne, uh, Los Angeles, Buenos Aires, all over the world, they're coming in and going out. And uh, he's told to seal up this book until the end. And he is told the time of the end that the thing that will characterize this time of the end will be this great increase in travel everywhere, speed and efficiency and ease of travel, travel and great increase in knowledge. Well, now, there is to be a time of trouble at this point, such as there never was, uh, uh, there were, sorry, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Well, now, that's a tremendous thing. Now, let's look at a few more scriptures. Turn over to Matthew, chapter 24, which is the passage we read a little earlier, from verse 3 to verse 9. Well, now we've read that. That's all about the time of the end. This passage, of course, has a twofold fulfillment. It is a prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem, and in that sense was fulfilled at that time. But it says... Tell us when these things shall be. Now, if you look in verse 1 and 2, you will see that he was talking about the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple took place in A.D. 70. Uh, it was the Roman armies under Titus that destroyed Jerusalem, laid siege to, to Jerusalem, and finally sacked and razed the temple. But you will also notice that they, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So in the Lord's words, in Matthew 24, you have a two-fold prediction. The time when the temple would be destroyed and beyond that at the end of the age. We've had one fulfillment of this and uh, now we wait for an even greater fulfillment of it. And then if you will also um, look at verse, from verse 21 to 27, I'll read that just again, not all of it, but just 21 and 22. For then shall be great tribulations, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. And ex except those days had been shortened, no flesh would have been saved. Now I want you to underline this, that no flesh would have been saved. It doesn't say that no Christian would be saved, but no flesh would be saved. This is our fear of a nuclear war. Um, years ago, it was not thought that it was possible by normal conventional weapons to destroy all flesh. And yet the Bible says that the time at the end will reach such a pitch that it looks as if it's possible for flesh to be destroyed. There's a possible for the whole race to commit uh, racial suicide. 
And the Lord says here, except those days had been shortened, no flesh should be saved. In other words, the Lord will have to intervene at the end in order to stop the final mad folly of the nations in destroying themselves and everything else. It is also interesting that it goes on to say, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Um, then, um, if we could turn to Mark 13, this is more or less the, the parallel passage to Matthew. Of course, this in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have a parallel passage to this chapter 24. Mark 13, verse 19, here we have it again, for the... For those days shall be tribulations such as there hath not been the light from the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never shall be. And except the Lord had shortened the days, no flesh would have been saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Another somber note. Now if you turn on to 2 Peter... Chapter 3, when I read this some uh, months ago in the New English Bible to some lads that came in from the street, they told me that the New English Bible had been written in the light of a nuclear explosion. And so I had to go and get my 1611 authorised version and read it to them again, pointing out to them the date so that they could clearly see that it was at least translated in 1611. And I was delighted because the 1611 version is even more uh, a fitting description of, uh, of a nuclear explosion, in fact, or war, than 2 Peter chapter 3 in the New English Bible. I'm going to read it in the revised version, and I'm going to read just a few verses from 10 to 12. This, I think we should read really the whole chapter, especially the part where it says, verse 3, knowing this first, that in the last days mockers shall come with mockery, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For from the day that the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, from the beginning of the creation. Now verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy living and godliness, looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God, by reason of which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, I think we should just note the, um, the actual phrases of Scripture. The heavens shall pass away, verse 10, with a great noise. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat. And then again in verse 12... The heavens being on fire. 
shall be dissolved. When I became a Christian in 1943, of course, as I've often pointed out to you, this passage was uh, uh, by many uh, thought to be a kind of miraculous uh, middle-aged type of uh, scene. Uh, but, of course, in 1945 and 6, all that was changed by the ushering in of the what we call the atomic era. Now, if you turn on to Revelation chapter 6, and you know, of course, the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. And yet, you know, you would have almost thought that John the Apostle had seen uh, an atomic explosion or two, uh, by the way that he uses these symbols. Uh, we're not going to look at them all, but if you look through the book of Revelation, it's quite remarkable, especially when he speaks of Babylon, and he's all the nations of the earth, from, very, from far off, we'll see this great column of smoke rising up into the heavens, and we'll weep and cry because this great center of commerce has been destroyed in one hour. Now, how on earth an apostle thought that a city could be destroyed in one hour, and how exactly it be accomplished, I don't know. But all I know is that his description, if you read it in the New English Bible, has a strangely contemporary ring about it. Now, here in Revelation 6, verse 12, I'm going to read from verse 13. The stars of the heaven fell unto the earth as a fig tree casteth her unripe figs when she is shaken of a great wind. And the heaven was removed as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the princes and the chief captains and the rich and the strong and every bondman and freeman hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who is able to stand? Now there are a number of other um, symbols used in this book which, as I have already said, seem to suggest something in the realm of a nuclear type of explosion. But I am going to turn you to only one more, because I don't want to keep you awake tonight, only one more, right back in Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah, and verse, chapter 14 and verse 12. Uh, now this prophet prophesied some 400 years before Christ, 500 years in the 6th century B.C., and this is how he describes the end of the age. Now listen, it is most remarkable. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the peoples that have warred against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their sockets. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. What a strange prediction. The end of the world, some terrible conflagration of the nations fighting one another with weapons that, that the Lord calls a plague, 
which he allowed, and which means that people's flesh and eyes and tongue can simply consume away whilst they're standing on their feet. Now, of course, we know after Hiroshima and Nagasaki that is exactly what happened and is a perfect, almost contemporary description of the immediate after effects of a nuclear nuclear explosion. Now we turn back again to Revelation, chapter 16. Now we're going to leave future troubles for a while and go on to something else. But uh, this is the introduction to it. Of course, there are many other scriptures, I might say. Spend the whole of the hour looking at them. Chapter 16 and uh, verse 13 now here we have in, in uh, symbolic form uh, what's going to characterize the end. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits, as it were, frogs. For they are spirits of demons, working signs, which go forth unto the kings of the whole world to gather them together unto the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, now listen to this little parenthesis. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together into the place which is called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now there are three things which are to characterize the leading up to this terrible war. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now I think you all know who the dragon is. Uh, in scripture especially, he's actually identified in, in uh, uh, Revelation 12, uh, verse 9. That great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, he that is called the devil, Satan. Now you couldn't have anything more explicit. He, the dragon is the serpent, uh, the devil, uh, Satan. So we can't get away from that. The dragon is Satan. He is the one who's behind it all, behind this, uh, these events. Secondly, we have what is called the beast. Now, we shall, in a moment, we're going to look at this. Uh, this um, symbol is always used in scripture of political power, civil and political power. We shall be going back in a moment to look at Daniel and his vision of, of the beasts, uh, the various visions he had of them. But here we are told that uh, we have the devil and next we have a great political system that the devil has joined up with and is manipulating and using. And the third uh, feature is what is called the false prophet. Now I think you all know that in scripture the prophet is a religious man. Uh, from beginning to end, uh, the prophet, the word prophet, the title, the profession, whether used in a good or evil way, always denotes people who are supposed or genuinely are speaking the word of God. So we have three things. We have the devil, we have a political system which is all-powerful, and we have a religion. 
or a something that um, claims to be the mouthpiece of God to the world. Here are three things then. Now, I don't think we need to deal or talk this evening about the devil. Um, he's known, I think, to most of you. And uh, we have had a study or two before uh, about him. But we have not ever looked at the scriptures to do with the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist in scripture is not someone who is supposed to be Christ. I hope you've got that clear. Um, the Antichrist is not someone who claims to be Christ, as some seem to think. The Antichrist is someone who opposes Christ takes his place by opposing him. It may well be, from what we can understand from Scripture, that the Antichrist will be atheistic in his view. Maybe, maybe not. Certainly it would seem he was agnostic. Now, um, let's have a look at some of the Scriptures to do with what is called Antichrist. Go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrible and powerful and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Uh, we haven't the time uh, to go through all this, but um, I think if you remember our studies on the book of Daniel, that we have the four beasts, and they are identified. The first kingdom, uh, which was the lion, is identified as Babylon. The second is the bear is Persia, and the third, the leopard, is Greece, and the fourth, this exceedingly ferocious beast with teeth of iron that stamped all the rest, uh, the residue into pieces, is the Roman Empire. Now, we see the Roman Empire in three ways. First, we see it as the beast, that's one era of the Roman Empire. Then we see it in a phase, what is called the Ten Horns, and finally, we see its last um, era or phase, which is the little horn. Now, this little horn is the Antichrist. Let's read up. Um, Daniel, uh, same uh, chapter, 20, verse 21. I was, uh, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Verse 25, and he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times of the law, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, and time, and half a time. Now, this strange little phrase, a time, times, and a half and half the time, is the uh, symbolic uh, uh, phrase used again and again of the tribulation. You'll find it in different ways, either in days, or months, or weeks, or years, three and a half all the time. We shall look at uh, that, we shall have to look at another time. Now if you'll turn over to Daniel 8. Daniel 8, verse 1. 
Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read it for you in the Revised Standard Version. You follow it in your authorised or English Revised. Daniel chapter 8, verse 21. And the he-goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, we know that first king. It was Alexander, one of the greatest military generals of antiquity. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. That's exactly what happened. As I think you know, Alexander died when he was 32 years of age. Suddenly, um, Greece broke up into four, and they, didn't, they were weak in many ways. They didn't have the same power um, of his former rule. And at the latter end of their rule, when the transgressors have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people of the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall magnify himself. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and shall even rise up against the prince of princes, but by no human hand he shall be broken. So there you have the course, again, of the Antichrist. Now in Daniel 11, chapter 11, verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatterers. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, and the prince of the covenant also. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Verse 31 Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the continual burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination of desolation. Now this is the phrase used in Matthew 24. Verse 36. And the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is determined shall be done. Now this, these three, these two, last two um, prophecies were of course of a man called Antiochus Epiphanes uh, who uh, claimed that he was a manifestation of God. He said that he was God incarnate. And he rose up exactly as the scripture says, we can't go into that this evening, but he rose up exactly according as scripture said and in fact was the one that some of you may have read about in history of the Jewish people in the days of the Maccabees. He was the one who took the temple, put in pig's blood at the altar, so desecrating it, it was called the abomination of desolation, brought in idols into the temple, and many other things he, he did. And ever since then, this man, 
Antiochus Epiphanes has become the archetype of the Antichrist. Now, a little later we shall see there's another archetype that is used in the New Testament, but Antiochus Epiphanes is the man who, if you would go away and get a book out and read about him, you'll find a lot out in his life story and history that will uh, perhaps explain something of the coming of the Antichrist. Now, if we will turn to Matthew 24 and 3 to 9, again, we have read this, but if you want to note down the scriptures, I'm so sorry, 24 verse 15, when therefore you shall see the abomination of desolation, the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist, when he joins up with the church, and a pact is made, and the abomination of desolation comes within the temple of God, then you know that the time of the end has come. Now, again, 1 John 2, verse 18. Now we come to the New Testament interpretation of the Antichrist. 1 John 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour, and as ye heard that Antichrist cometh, even now have there arisen many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last hour. The Antichrist cometh. Chapter 4, verse 2, verse 3, And every spirit that confesseth not Jesus is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it cometh. And now it is in the world already. The spirit of Antichrist in the world, but there is going to be an embodiment uh, um, of him at the end of the age. Now, uh, one very interesting little point, by the way, if you see in your margin of verse 3 of chapter 4 of 1 John, you will see in your margin that it says, every spirit that annulleth Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? People can annul what the Lord Jesus stands for and what the Lord Jesus is without actually, outwardly, publicly denying him. Uh, now, uh, turn back to 2 Thessalonians. And here we have, I suppose, the fullest account and the most frightening account of the Antichrist in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to read it first in the Revised Standard Version. Uh, in the... Um, Standard version. I'm going to read it in the New English Bible afterwards. I'll read from verse 3. Let no man beguile you in any wise, for it will not be except the falling away come first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. He that opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know that that which restraineth, to the end that he may be revealed in his own season. For the mystery of lawlessness doth already work. Only there is one that restraineth now, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall be revealed the lawless one, whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to naught by the manifestation of his coming." Even he whose coming is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, 
and with all deceit of unrighteousness for them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God sendeth them a working of error, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be judged who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, I want you to note certain phrases. They're frightening. Verse 3, the man of sin, the son of perdition. Verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness. Verse 9, whose coming is according to the working of Satan. Verse 11, a working of error. Now I'm going to read this in the New English Bible because it really is quite shattering. Now listen to this in modern 20th century language. 2 Thessalonians 2. And now, brothers, about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his gathering of us to himself. I beg you, do not suddenly lose your heads or alarm yourselves, whether at some oracular utterance or pronouncement or some letter purporting to come from us, alleging that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way whatever. That day cannot come before the final rebellion against God, when wickedness will be revealed in human form. The man doomed to perdition. He is the enemy. He rises in his pride against every god so-called, every object of men's worship. This is where they've got the idea that he'll be an atheist or agnostic. And even takes his seat in the temple of God, claiming to be a god himself. You cannot but remember that I told you this while I was still with you. You must now be aware of the restraining hand which ensures that he shall be revealed only at the proper time. This means that God is holding back this incarnation of evil until the right time for the end. For already the secret power of wickedness is at work, secret only for the present until the restrainer disappears from the scene. And then he will be revealed, that wicked man whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth and annihilate by the radiance of his coming. But the coming of that wicked man is the work of Satan. That's why some of the old Puritans believe that the Antichrist would be born of Satan in the same way that the Lord Jesus was born of God. It will be attended by all the powerful signs and miracles of the lie. Isn't that a, a resting uh, phrase? It will be attended by all the powerful signs and, and miracles of the lie and all the deception that sinfulness can impose on those doomed to destruction. Destroyed they shall be because they did not open their minds to love of the truth so as to find salvation. Therefore God puts them under a delusion which works upon them to believe the lie so that they may all be brought to judgment. All who do not believe the truth but make sinfulness their deliberate choice. I say it's a most remarkable rendering in modern 20th century English. That is the clearest uh, definition of the Antichrist coming at the end of this age that there is in the Bible. It's not symbolic. It's absolutely clear and definite. Now, as Antiochus Epiphanes was the archetype of the Antichrist in the Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, so Nero is the archetype of the Antichrist in the New. And it was thought by many that when Nero died, he would be 
uh, raised, he would be revived, he would come back from the dead. And many of the uh, sort of uh, pseudo-Christian works speak of Nero coming back from the dead to take the, the throne. And this was an idea that caught on very much. Many of the Christians and the Jews felt that this well could well be the Antichrist, for Nero was a man extraordinary for his wickedness. And therefore, to them, he seemed to be the very incarnation of evil. Now that is why in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New, it speaks of him receiving a mortal wound and reviving. And when Nero, who was so wicked, people couldn't believe he could die, so that when finally he died, uh, they were sure that somehow or other he was lurking around somewhere and would come back. In the same way that many people cannot believe that Hitler is dead. For somewhere in the shadows he lurks and will suddenly reappear. Uh, to sort of take again uh, authority and power. Well, now, um, it seems from all this that the Antichrist is a person and a system. He is a person and a political system. Now we can look at Revelation chapter 13. Chapter 13, we will read from 1 to 8. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as though it had been smitten unto death. Here's the Antichrist, the, the embodiment, the incarnation of evil. And his death stroke was healed. And the whole earth wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. Because he gave his authority unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And there was given to him authority to continue forty and two months. Stay three and a half again. And he opened his mouth for blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, even them that dwell in the heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And there was given to him authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, every one whose name hath not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb that hath been slain. Now I want you to note one thing. People have often said, that they cannot believe that we'll ever have a world government or a government that would exercise enough authority over a greater enough part of this world to make it workable. But, you know, in the end, people will be so afraid of some great final conflict that they may well start to give more and more sovereignty to a central body. Now, this is very interesting that the people of the earth it said John the Apostle, they said why they, they thought this beast was so tremendous and should be supported was who is able to make war with one so powerful, with one so absolutely, with everything that was concentrated in his hand, we have peace. No one's able to make war. We can be at peace. 
Now, if the man was to as evil as you and I, in our minds, think he, he should be, then it would be very hard for us to consider that he could get to that place. But this is the whole point. Hitler deluded and deceived a whole nation. When he finally came to power, even well-known Christians were taken in by Hitler. He did so much good. Many of the aspects of his work were good. And people were swept into the orbit. I have spoken with people, many of my friends now, who were Nazi officials, who have since been saved. And they have told me why they were Nazi officials and how good it was. No divorce, they said. No trash on the radio. No bad magazines. Everything was so moral and up. Right. He seemed such a good man. He promised us so much. I was taken to see the great housing estates, which he built for the people and gave them. I met the man who was his chauffeur all, all through his life. And the man said to me, he was such a good man. I, I was fanatically for him. He gave me my house. Built it and gave it to me. And therefore the people are with him. And you know, it is possible that an antichrist could arise. I, I thought to myself that you know, I mustn't go too far, they'll not all sleep. Um, but I have pamphlets uh, that I know now and again I mention concentration camps. It's not because I'm anti-German or that I want to make people unhappy who belong to that nation, but because I think it is our duty not to allow anyone to forget what can happen when there is a working of error. It can happen to any nation that is once deceived. Any nation. Now, I was going to bring one or two pamphlets and put them on the table and just let you but I think you've got enough already uh, to make you aware. Do you know that in, in Mauthausen alone, 176,000 people died, and yet just 12 miles away was a great, the great city of Linz, and they swear that they never even knew that 176,000 people were dying. And yet the, the crematoria um, furnace was never out, so that at night it lit up the sky, burning the bodies. Now, my dear friends, if it's possible for something to take a whole powerful, cultured, educated people and, and to deceive them into thinking that it is righteous and good, so much so, that they wholeheartedly give themselves to its support, and at the same time, by night, it can secretly take a whole Jewish population and many Christians and destroy them under the very <coughs> noses of those people who think it's righteousness, you must begin to understand just what it is to have a working of error. Do you know that it may be possible for the Antichrist to come and the whole world to think so much of him that in the end we Christians will disappear in the night and no one will even know or be uh, uh, brave enough, courageous enough to ask what has happened. I've spoken with people who told me that they had Jewish friends and they came the next day and found they'd gone. But they were too frightened to inquire. By then the thing was too powerful to stop. I have a friend who supplied the gas to the concentration camp at Mauthausen. And she didn't even know that it was being used to kill people. 
She thought it was for delousing the prisoners of war that were coming. And she actually supervised one whole group in Linz, in the station, not knowing that they were bound for death. She thought, there's a very fine cultured woman, uh, a high class woman, she thought that the Nazi party was the salvation of Europe and the only bulwark against communism. Now, I'm only just saying all this simply because I want you to realize that it is possible for a man to, to, be, to be raised up in a people and for everyone to think that the man is good and at the same time to actually eliminate the people he doesn't want. So they don't even know that it's happening. Well, we could tell you many, many stories. I, when we went to Mauthausen, two or three of the Christians live in the village on the opposite side of the hill, and they can almost see the, the uh, camp. And when we spoke with them, we sa I said to them, did you ever realize? But they said, no. In fact, we were told on the radio and in the newspapers, these people must not be helped because they were traitors. We saw them marching to the quarries every day and we thought they looked very poor, but we never dared to help them. And if one of them had escaped, we would have phoned the police immediately. They were, those were Christians. That's how far deception can go. And we mustn't think that it was just uh, um, uh, that the Germans had something in their temperament that helped them to be misled in this way. It is just as possible for us to be misled. The thing could happen easily in France. At present, there's a good man uh, in control, but a bad man could come. And the thing could start quietly, quietly, stealthily, like a thief, until finally full control is obtained. Well, I won't say more, but I want you to realize that Revelation chapter 13 is not just fantasy. Now, if you look back to Revelation 11, verse 7, you will see that we have again a mention of the beast. And it says, when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that cometh up out of the abyss shall make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Chapter 12, verse 3. And there was seen another sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, upon his head seven crowns. So, you see, this beast in chapter 13, uh, that we read, which is a conglomeration of those four uh, beasts in Daniel, all rolled into one, uh, is the same uh, as the dragon, who is the devil, in chapter 12. Now, all this is linked, you see. Now, what about a false church? Uh, just a little while on, on this matter. Well, here we've got it. Revelation 13, continuing straight on from verse 11. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like unto a lamb. And he spake as a dragon. He had two horns like unto a lamb and spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the authority of the first beast in his sight. And he maketh the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose death stroke was healed. And he doeth great signs that he should even make fire to come down out of heaven upon the earth in the sight of men. 
and he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by reason of the signs which it was given him to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast with the stroke of the sword and live. And it was given unto him to give breath to it, even to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as should not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the bond, that there be given them a mark on their right hand or upon their forehead, and that no man should be able to buy or to sell, save he that hath the mark, even the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. He that hath understanding, let him count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Now, why Nero was considered to be uh, Antichrist is because um, Nero Caesar in Hebrew is 666. Now, in the New English Bible, this is brought out very clearly in the last verse, where it says this, Here is the key. And anyone who has intelligence may work out the number of the beast. Cuts out a lot of us, especially over the years, because there's been an awful lot of uh, fanciful uh, working out of this. The number represents a man's name. I couldn't be clearer. The number represents a man's name. And the numerical value of its letters are 660. Of course, there were those who worked out Hitler's name to 666, and there were those who've done other things since then. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, there it is for us. In the end, we shall understand it, I think, rather clearly. Now, will you notice that this false church, this false prophet, uh, is another beast with horns like a ram. In other words, it's just like the Lord Jesus. See? It's got all, it simulates the Lord Jesus. seems to be the same thing. But it has the voice of a dragon. <laughs> it's the devil inside and the lamb outside. Revelation 17. You see, it's mostly scripture this evening. Revelation 17, from verse 1. I will show thee the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and they that dwell in the earth were made drunken with the wine of her fornication. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-coloured beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and decked with gold, or gilded with gold and precious stone and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, even the unclean things of her fornication, and upon her forehead a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with a great wonder. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou wonder? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss, again, dead and raised, and to go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, they whose name hath not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast, how that he was and is not and shall come. So there's something quite miraculous to do with the Antichrist, which will deceive everyone. 
Here is the mind that hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And they are seven kings, the five are fallen, the one is, the other has not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a little while. And the beast that was and is not is himself also an eighth and is of the seven, and he goeth into perdition. And the ten horns that thou sawest are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one mind and they give their power and authority unto the beast. These shall war against the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they also shall overcome that are with him, called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the harlot sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest, and the beast, these shall hate the harlot, shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and shall burn her utterly with fire. For God did put it in their hearts to do his mind, and to come to one mind, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the word, words of God should be accomplished. And the woman whom thou sawest is the great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now I just want to do things very swiftly. First, this woman rides the beast. The New English Bible puts it like that. She rides, or as the authorised version puts it, the beast carries her. Um, she rides it. In other words, she uses the beast to get somewhere. That's one point. The second thing is she is involved with the nations. She commits fornication, it says, with all the kings of the earth. In other words, she sells herself. She compromises herself in order to win the favours of the nations. She wears the tabernacle and temple colours, purple and scarlet. She also wears the stones of the city of God. Gold, precious stone, and pearl. She is a harlot and not a virgin bride. She is drunk with the blood of the saints and martyrs. She is of the earth and not of heaven. Now, who is this woman? Who is this harlot? Uh, she is identified, um, she's only another picture of the false prophet. Here you have the counterpart of the true church. On the one hand in the Bible you have New Jerusalem, on the other hand you have Babylon. On the one hand you have the bride of the Lamb, and on the other hand, you have the harlot of the nations. These two are, as it were, opposites. And all the way through Scripture, you find in the book of Revelation, finally, they both come to their uh, full maturity. On the one hand, we see the bride coming out of heaven, adorned uh, and made ready for her husband, the Lamb of God. And on the other hand, you see this harlot riding the beast to glory. In fact, it's almost, if I may put it like it's almost like a, 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 a spectacle in front of our eyes, if you read the book of Revelation like that. As you go through it, you see this, these two women, as it were, um, coming to their position. And the harlot hopes to get the position that the other woman has been given. Now, it is very interesting, and um, as I said 
last week, I said a good deal more, I think, about this matter of the um, counterfeit church uh, last week. Um, suffice, it, uh, suffice it this evening just to say this, that at the end of this age, there will be a reuniting of all the various segments of Christendom into one great universal church. Now, I ask you, if you look at history, what has been drunk with the blood of believers? Not just and merely, as many Protestants would say, the Roman Catholic Church. The old, uh, the old uh, uh, traditional interpretation was, of course, this is the Roman Catholic Church. And people pointed to the fact that she was on the seven hills or the seven mountains and said, there is a complete uh, identification. And the fact is that all the great fathers of the church identified this woman with Rome. And all the reformers identified this woman with Rome. Uh, the early fathers, of course, not with the church of Rome, but with the political power of Rome. And the reformers with the ecclesiastical power of Rome. But why where everyone is uh, unanimous is that it is Rome that is in question. But you know, my dear friends, Christendom itself, has been the greatest persecutor of true believers down through the centuries, more so than any civil power. You have only to go upstairs into the library and take the various books on church history, and you will soon discover that blood has been spilt until it's run in rivers by organized Christianity. It was not only the Roman Catholic Church that burnt people at the stake, but you know that later on it was the so-called Reformed Church that was tying up Baptists and throwing them into the river. To lay down. Men, women and children. It was even the Reformed Church of Switzerland that burnt some uh, at the stake. And so we can go on, and we can go on, and we can go on. Who persecuted the Quakers? But the, the Puritans, not the true Puritans, but when the Puritans have lost their love and their life. And uh, who killed some of the early Methodists? But the establishment. And so we could go on, and we could go on. This woman is drunk with the blood of the saints and of the martyrs of Jesus. So we understand from this that in the end there will be some universal organized church which will link up with the political power in order that it might, as it will be transported to where it wants to get. And for a while, God will allow it just to be transported. And then it says the political power will turn on the counterfeit church and destroy it. But not before that counterfeit church has spilt the blood of many true believers. Now, um, some people may say, oh dear, that's a bit fanatical to talk like that and all the rest of it. But you see, look, a few years ago, we may have been thought to be fanatical. 
But here are dozens and dozens of cuttings taken from the papers only in the last few years about church unity. All the compromise is on the side of the Protestants. And I'm not bothered about whether they're Protestants. I'm not a Protestant. I'm a Christian. But what I want to say is this, that where they're compromising is on essential points of doctrine. I don't mean just doctrine for doctrine's sake, but things that are absolute, for which many, many of our forefathers laid down their lives. They laid down their lives, they spilt their blood in order that we might have it. And for us, it's household words. Now I'm told we mustn't look at those things. We must forget those things. We've got to compromise to be one. The sin of division, as, it's, as we're told again and again and again, until it's, it's drummed into our ears. The sin of division, the sin of division, the sin of division, the sin of disunity. We must all compromise. But the point is, yes, but it's not all our compromising. The Pope and Cardinal B and others in the Vatican have said, and they are absolutely honest, and this we can give to them, they are absolutely honest, they have said unequivocally that the Roman Catholic Church cannot go back on one single point of doctrine. Could there be anything more honest? And yet all the other churches, they are compromising and compromising and compromising. Now, I don't want just to appear like uh, a sort of used Churchillian uh, phrases and oratory, but you know what it is? It's a doctrine of appeasement. That's all. And it will lead to the strangling, in the end, of true freedom. It will. It's a doctrine of appeasement. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere in the Protestant churches, they are appeasing and appeasing and appeasing, going forward and forward and forward, giving away more and more and more and more. Even the World Baptist Movement has now been told that it might have to consider, it might have to consider uh, adjustments in believers' baptism in order to be one with our brothers and our brethren in the other communities. It's an amazing place that we've got to when Huguenot pastors ask the Archbishop of Rouen to come and celebrate Mass, or rather they might go in one of their conferences and watch Mass celebrated in order that they might understand the intricacies and the beauties of the Mass. No people suffered more than the Huguenots. They were slaughtered in their thousands for refusing to have anything to do with what they called an idolatrous practice. And now, their ancestors are, 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 are watching the intricacies and beauties of that same practice explained to them in order that they may be one. Well, we could go on. We'll perhaps we'll have to spend another evening talking a little more on these points if I were to read just some of these cuttings to you just to refresh your minds. But it's happened. In 1946, I think it was, 45, 46, I cannot remember now, um, I remember a discussion in the home of a Christian, a dear friend, whom I was only a lad, and I heard them all talking about this woman in Revelation 17 and 18. 
and uh, they said then that it was the Church of Rome. And I wondered at the time whether it was really the Church of Rome. And in the end, I was so taken away by the discussion, there were quite a, uh, quite a number of people were there that you all know well uh, nowadays in Christian circles, and they were talking, and I quite spontaneously burst in where I shouldn't have done, and said, uh, didn't they think it could be just Christendom? Just nominal Christianity, because I was only about 14, 15. And uh, these were all, uh, some of them, white-haired lead, evangelical leaders. And I remember one of them, a dear man, telling me, saying, oh, no, laddie, I don't think so. I don't, you'd never get the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, uh, and the Church of England uh, reunited with Rome. You'd never get the Church of Scotland. But it's happened. It actually happened. The moderator of the Church of Scotland has been to the Pope and had tea with him, taken presents to him. The Archbishop of Canterbury, after 400 years, went, so he said, just to have tea. And then afterwards, they told us it wasn't just tea. Although we were told clearly at the time, it was only to have tea. It was a courtesy visit. We were told afterwards uh, the possibility of steps towards reunion were discussed. Yes. The thing now has started, the, bo the ball has been uh, started to roll, and now nothing on earth can stop it. Nothing. Now, don't be depressed. Don't be depressed. Don't go out and put your head in the gas oven. There's no need for it. No need at all. That ball has been set rolling, and it is in, in every way under the hands of a sovereign God. We have no need to, f to fear. There is a sense in which we must be prepared in the end, one day possibly, to lose our lives. Christians are losing their lives elsewhere. And one day, maybe, maybe, it will come even to these shores as well. We don't know. There are many fascinating side lights on this matter of the end of the age. There is a place prepared in the wilderness, for instance, for the whole world of refuge, where believers can get to and be safe. Where is that place? Could it be these islands? Could it be the States? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is this, that the outlook on, on, on the one hand is dark and somber and terrible. And woe betide any Christian who doesn't count the cost and look it squarely in the eyes and see beyond this to the coming of the Lord. All this, all this, what have we to fear? Well, I think we ought to, I know I've gone over time, but look, just take three scriptures, and I think because I was just frightened that you might be a little bit depressed. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. I think we ought to just go back to these scriptures and end on these. And in the days of those kings, that's the days of the Antichrist, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Hallelujah. And then Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of heaven, one like unto a son of man, and he came even to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Verse 17. 
These great beasts which are four are four kings that shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, isn't that encouraging? Right in the middle of all this talk of the Antichrist, listen, it says, they shall possess the kingdom forever, yes, even forever and ever. Well, I think that's wonderful. It's just like the Lord to give us a little word like that in the middle of all this. And then verse 21, I beheld on the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Very depressing. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. There you are. Could there be anything more thrilling? Well, I think we could go on and on. Genesis and Gen Daniel chapter 12 about that time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time and then it goes on and says and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life some to shame and everlasting contempt and they that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever could there be anything more wonderfully encouraging than that revelation chapter 15 and uh, verse 2 Listen to this. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that come off victorious from the beast, and from his image, and from the number of his name, uh, standing by the sea of glass, having hearts of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the ages. Who shall not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name and then chapter 19 after these things i heard as it were a great voice of a great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our god for true and righteous are his judgments for he hath judged the great harlot yes he hath judged the great harlot her that corrupted the earth with her fornication and he hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand and a second time they say hallelujah and her smoke goeth up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God that sitteth on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And the voice came forth from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all ye his servants, ye that fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of many mighty thunders, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God almighty, omnipotent, reigneth. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad, and let us give the glory unto him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And lastly, chapter 21, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And then in verse 3, and I heard the voice of God saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall be their God, and they shall be his people. Well, there's nothing to fear. The Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne. He's ascended. <coughs> He's enthroned. He's absolutely victorious. There's no advance he cannot make. No intention he cannot realize. No obstacle he cannot overcome. We're on the victory side. 
Let them take our meeting place. Let them take our bodies. Let them take everything else. They cannot take away the Lord. They cannot. And in the end, he has the last word. And when they've done their worst, and the Lord will stand back and let them do it, when they've done their worst, the Lord will with one single word bring in his own everlasting kingdom. Let's be with him on the victory side. Nothing, nothing, nothing that can be lost and left with this old uh, rotten mess that will go into judgment. Let's not have anything to do with that. Let's, let's go on with the Lord and let's be a people purified and ready for him so that uh, when he comes uh, we, shall be, we shall be a bride that has made herself ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Shall we pray? Now, Lord Jesus, we do pray that thou wouldst really write on our hearts what has been vital this evening. Let us forget the rest, Lord. But what is really of thyself, write it on our hearts, Lord, and by thy Spirit interpret it. Thou knowest we've ranged over very much of this confused and intricate and complex subject, but we pray by thy Holy Spirit thou wouldst make us those who by the anointing from God know what is of God and what is not. And teach us, dear Lord, we pray, to be those who are unspotted by that which is contaminated with evil. We ask it in thy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.